turn in your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk. Now, this is the last time for some time I'm going to tell you that. We're finishing up a seven-week series that we've looked at this three-chapter book uh, out of the Old Testament, a book that probably for some of you, you had never even heard of this guy's name. And now you've invested uh, a lot of time uh, learning about him, about his relationship with God, about his uh, understanding of the world around him. And for some, as I've heard, some have really come to enjoy them. Habakkuk is a guy that's a lot like you. You got a lot of questions. You, you want to know, God, what are you up to? God, when are you going to address some of the evils and injustices that the world seems to be overflowing with? And God, when are you going to get about your business of proving that you're the one and you're the one who created all things and is in charge of all things? And God, let's just get to that because I, in some ways, and this may sound bad, but I want to be vindicated. I want, I want uh, my testimony of you to be proven right to the people that I live around, to the people I work with. When I've told them I'm a Christ follower, I really want them to see that everything that I've said about you is true. That's what Habakkuk is saying. He sees injustice. He sees tragedy and, and all kinds of injustice taking place in his world. And he's saying, God, when are you going to show up? God, when are you going to prove yourself to be the God that I know uh, you are? And so we come today uh, to the end of it. And we've watched the education, if you will, of Habakkuk. He comes in with his complaints or his laments about uh, what it is to live in a sinful world and to wonder where God is at when trouble comes. But God has taught him and shown him what his plans and purposes are. He says, listen, I've been watching and I've been working and my plan is being played out as we speak. You see, I'm going to bring discipline upon uh, my people because they have chosen to follow their neighbors and the pursuit of their gods instead of following me as I have faithfully led them and provided and cared for them. Instead of following me in my ways, they've gone other directions. And then what Habakkuk is told is that uh, what's going to happen is the neighboring evil empire of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to be God's rod of discipline against God's people. And here's the second question that Habakkuk has. How can God discipline his people who are running into some trouble, who are getting themselves into trouble because of sin, how could God use a more evil, a more vicious, a more violent and treacherous group of people to discipline his people? And God says, that's exactly what I'm going to do. But with Judah, the people of Israel, I am going to discipline them But in due time, I will destroy the empire of Babylon. There's a big difference between discipline, which is for a short season, and destruction. And so God says, I've got a plan, I've got a purpose, and Habakkuk has a decision to make, just as we all do. We are either going to say, God, you've got a plan, you've got a purpose, you've got a, uh, a uh, plan that's being laid forth, and I'm going to trust that, I'm going to believe in that, I'm going to follow that, even when it doesn't make sense to me, or I'm going to go my own way. Well, Habakkuk learns that the righteous live by faith. He makes a decision, I'm going to trust you, God. And in this last passage of Habakkuk chapter 3, as we close out this book, we see this Habakkuk who was complaining in chapter 1 is standing secure and resting and in fact rejoicing in the plans and purposes of God even when they didn't make sense to him. And that's what we want to get to this morning. What we want to get to has been the theme of this entire series that when trouble comes, when issues come our way that we don't like, when, when we run into difficulties that maybe we didn't see coming, when God's plans are different than our plans, will we do one of two things, go our own way and rebel against God as the world does, or will we follow the ways of Habakkuk who rejoices and rests and trusts in God and God alone? And we're going to learn today how to do that. Now, one of the things that we come to at the end of this passage is a realization that what really is bothering Habakkuk is he's worried. He's anxious. And I've come to realize and recognize that worry and anxiety is something that all of us as people face. I'm watching a documentary, in fact, just finished it up on World War I. And I love some of the little tidbits I learn of history. And the phrase shell-shocked came from World War I. 
They had never seen it before, but what was happening is World War soldiers, one soldiers, would come back from the front and they would be facing this new malady they had never seen before. Seemingly able-bodied men were shaking uncontrollably. They could not get their bearings and they would just be shaking all the time, twitching about involuntarily. And doctors couldn't figure it out and they couldn't figure it out until they had seen more and more of it and what they came to realize was this is one of the consequences of trench warfare, which was incredibly popular in uh, World War I. And trench warfare was people that would be involved in these dugout places, and they would just literally sit there hoping not to get bombed. So the, uh, the, the enemies would be shooting these uh, artillery shells at them, and you would hear them fly through the sky. And the question was, and it would go on for hours on end, day after day, the people in the trenches would be wondering, they would be literally shaking, is this the one that's going to hit us? And then it would hit somewhere else, and they would still be alive. And then another one would come, and they would say, is this one going to hit us? And the nervousness of always wondering, is this the bomb that's going to take us out, caused a permanent malady of being shell-shocked. Well, some of us this morning find ourselves in the trenches of life, wondering if the next concern, the next situation, the next argument that we have with somebody, will that be the time that my life falls apart? And some of you right now maybe might not be showing the, the external manifestations of being shell-shocked, but every part of your inside is shaking right now. You're filled with worry. You're filled with dread. You're filled with all kinds of anxiety and concern. Our studies tell us here in America, more than a third of Americans, adults, suffer from some level of anxiety or worry. That's a problem. It seems to affect, and I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, but something very concerning, that it affects two groups most especially, adult women and also teenagers. They are concerned, they are anxious, they are worried, and there's all kinds of ways that you can find your way out of it. You can find yourself in all kinds of self-help ideas and techniques. Others have pursued pharmaceuticals, and they've worked at times, and others haven't. And, And some of you right now are asking the question, how do I stop Worrying. How do I stop being anxious? There's so much to be worried about. There's so much to have anxiety over. What if this happens or what if that happens? And we find ourselves filled with all kinds of dread. And this is where Habakkuk is at in chapter 2. He's learning that God says, I don't want you to fear. I don't want you to be anxious about things. I want you to trust me. But that is a large chasm to get to. From worry to trust can be difficult. And I don't tell you this and say, here the simple answer is now go fix it. I recognize that even in my own life, the things that I worry about are far more than I would ever want to share in a public setting. And some of the crazy things that I worry about, some of the what-ifs and the theoretical things that get going around in my head, I would be ashamed to tell you that I actually spent time worrying about it. Another study told us that we spend, in an average lifespan, we spend about 6.4 years. Let me say that again. We spend 6.4 years of our life in a state of worry. And we look and we see the amount of intoxication that's going on in our world and we see the strife within relationships and we see the the, the difficulty that our students have uh, in America and we know we are a society that worries. But the Bible says, with regards to worry, even before... Um, many of the uh, self-help manuals and the making of pharmaceuticals, Paul said, be anxious for nothing, but pray. Jesus said, do not worry about what tomorrow may bring, for today has its own worries. And you say, well, that doesn't help me any, because I worry about today. But I remember growing up, there was a theologian. He was from the Caribbean. His name was Bobby McFerrin. And, and he said this, He said, don't worry, help me out. Be happy. I love what he says in the first stanza of his his song. He says, 
in every life we have some trouble, and I should do it with my uh, Jamaican accent, but I won't dare. He says, in every life we have some trouble, but when you worry, you make it double. So don't worry. Be happy. Now, listen. I know some of you are throwing barbs at me right now. Are you kidding me? You're going to quote Bobby McFerrin? The things I'm concerned about, the things I'm worried Tim, you don't understand that tomorrow may be my last day at work. Tomorrow, Tim, you don't understand what I'm concerned about is, is my marriage going to stay together? Tim, you don't understand that, that my kid is going the wrong way. And I'm not sure what to do about it. And you're quoting a pop song from 1988 and telling me, don't worry, be happy. And I want you to know it has nothing to do with Bobby McFerrin, but the word of God. God has an antidote for all of our struggles, all of our situations. And his antidote is faith in God. Faith in God. Not, not worry about the things of this world. Not worry about what maybe North Korea is going to do or, or is all of this racial tension and, and seeming polarization in our, in our society. Is it going to tear our country apart? We can't sit there in worry. We've got to trust that God, whatever He is up to and whatever He's doing, that He's going to do it well. But again, that's easier said than done. A couple different people have said some great things about worry, far better than I could ever say. Corey Temboom has probably one of the best quotes or statements on worry, and it has helped me immensely. And I've shared this before, but she says, worrying is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it won't get you anywhere. Think about that. Worry is just back and forth, back, and it doesn't get you any closer to a solution, but it gives you something to do. And some of you are filling your lives with worry, and it keeps you busy, but it's not getting you anywhere. Uh, Another person said, we have moments absolutely free of worry as human beings. We call these brief respites panic. (laughs) And some of us are living there. John MacArthur put it this way, the beginning of anxiety is the end of faith. Let me say that again. The beginning of anxiety is the end of faith. The beginning of true faith is the end of anxiety. Another pastor put it this way, all of our fret, anxiety, and worry are caused by us calculating life without God. When we worry, what we're saying, he says, is God can't. Faith says God can And so we need to understand and recognize that when we are walking in anxiety, we're not totally walking in faith. But God wants us to be people of faith. The righteous shall live by faith, Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 says. But let me remind you again, this isn't a simple solution. This is a daily decision to put everything under the cross of Jesus Christ and the sovereignty of God. We all know, listen, men, women, children, rich, poor, wherever we find ourselves, all of us have known the clutches of worry. We've had that small trickle of fear that meanders through our minds at crazy times of the day. And we know that worry just drains our lives. And so God in his infinite love and mercy says, I don't want you to live this way. I want you to live by faith. And the prophet shows us how to. So let's turn in our Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, turn to page 786 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. And let me read uh, for us this morning uh, the rest of the book, okay? Now remember where we finished off. We finished off where Habakkuk is praying the prayer according to the Shigianoth, this violent and erratic kind of prayer for a violent and erratic kind of life. And and some of you are living Shigianoth kinds of lives right now. And that's what fills you with all kinds of fear and worry and anxiety and concern. And so what we need to come to is a realization of what did Habakkuk do? How did God empower Habakkuk not to worry? So how do we win against worry? Let's look to our text this morning starting in verse 3. God came from Teman 
and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His ways were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushion in affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian. By the way, Cush and Midian are areas just around the present day land of Egypt. So he says, I saw the tents of Cushion in affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place, and the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced him with his own arrows, the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Habakkuk responds and he says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, you are my strength. You make my feet like the deer's. You make me tread on high places. And we know it's a song because it says to the choir master with stringed instruments. Let's pray. Father God, as we close out this book, I ask that you would uh, focus our attention and our time this morning on the issue of worry, anxiety, fear, and dread. In this world, Lord, you told us we would have trouble, but Lord, you told us take heart, for you have overcome the world. Let us take our eyes off of that which concerns us and put it squarely on you, who is bigger and greater than anything that could harm us or cause us pain this morning. Lord, I pray that we might apply this truth. According to your scriptures, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we look to the issue of winning against worry and looking at our text, the first thing we need to recognize doesn't come out of the text, but it's a natural response. And that is when, when we are worrying, our natural response is, well, how do I fix it? And many times, instead of going to God through faith, we go to our own. And so the first thing we need to do, if we want to win against worries, we've got to reject human strategies. We've got to reject human strategies. We've got to stop trying to fix this or win this war on our own. But that's what we do so often. There are a lot of ways that people will tell you to get over your worries, to get over your anxieties. Some will say just stop thinking about it and you just want to slap them, right? Well, that doesn't work. If it was that easy, then I would never worry. But even some of the more helpful things help for a season, but then begin to fall flat or short. And so what happens is, is when the troubled skies begin to form around us, when the seas begin to foam around us in life, we usually go to one of three postures or strategies. I want you to write these down. When trouble comes, the first strategy that many of us will go to is what I'd like to call the Murphy's Law Approach. 
The Murphy's Law approach was made famous by Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. When things would happen that weren't going as planned, when, when those little forest creatures ran into a problem, Eeyore would say, listen, this is how it's going to go. It's just going to happen this way. And some of you see a situation go, up oh, there we go. What can go wrong will go wrong. And so you're filled with all kinds of fear and dread because one little thing happened and you believe each and every time that one little thing happens to you that it is just going to be a ripple effect of bigger and badder things to take place in your life. And you're like, it's just going to get worse. And you become devastated, not because of the situation that you're facing in the here and now, but at the prospect that things are only going to get worse. Listen, we do this with medical issues. We have a pain. And we have this pain and it won't go away or something is there and it won't clear up. And we do this all the time. And we go on WebMD and it says either take an antacid or you have fourth stage colon cancer. And what do you do? I got colon cancer. I'm dying. And there are times, listen, and it's affected us as a family. There are times that the cancer diagnosis will come. But I got to be honest with you. How many times have we worried and feared that this little pain, this little ache in our bodies is something that an aspirin can take care of? And we're already four surgeries in, in our mind. Okay? Now, I get it. I recognize it. I'm a parent. I'm concerned about my kids. I, I'm a husband who has had a wife that's had to go through cancer surgery. I get it. But I will tell you, I know even us as a family, we've gotten concerned about things. And we've sometimes had to be humbled in a doctor's office. And I'm not saying, by the way, you've got all these things I've got to be careful with. I'm not saying when you're concerned, don't go to the doctor, by the way, okay? I don't want someone to come to me and they're growing, you know, three new arms. They're like, well, Pastor Tim said, don't worry about it, okay? Okay? You're in charge of your body, all right? I don't want you coming back and hanging that over me, okay? We, we need to think through it. But how many times, how many times do we allow worry when it comes to our medical needs? Do we allow anxiety and worry to just change everything about our lives and who we are before we even have an answer? Murphy's Law, what can go wrong will go wrong. It's only going to get worse. Second approach that doesn't work is the ostrich approach. Worry or trouble comes, and you're, you're looking at it head on, and the worry comes, head down, dig a little bit, head goes in the sand. La-dee-dee, la-dee-da, I don't see nothing, I hear nothing. Well, don't you know about your financial issues? No, nope. don't talk about it. La, 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 la. I don't want to know about it. Well, you got some issues in your marriage. Or whatever. No, I don't. If I worry about it, that's going to be a problem, and so I'm just not going to worry about it. I'm going to watch TV, and some of us just, just fill our lives with other people's lives on TV because we don't want to deal with the situation that's going on. Some of us are concerned about things within our family or concerned about things in our job and instead of addressing them and doing the hard things, we just stick our head in the sand and we play our best role as an ostrich. Some of you are there right now with issues and concerns. Instead of addressing them head on, your head's in the sand and you think just give it time and it will all pass. And sometimes it does, but many times it doesn't. Third approach is going to hit close to home maybe even for some of my peers, is not Murphy's Law, not the ostrich approach, but the helicopter approach. And so, oh, I heard that. The helicopter approach. And we do this as parents. We're worried about our kids. We're worried about the playing time they're getting on the field. We're worried that they're not first chair in the band. We're worried that they got the extra part in the play. We're worried about that they're not doing so well in school. And so we get in our little helicopters and and we just sit right over them. And wherever they go, we're following them. Wherever they're going on the field, we're there. We're right in the coach's ear. Hey, what about 12? Hey, hey, number 12 is really good. Hey, you're a bad coach because number 12's not in. You go to the parent-teacher conference and you say, teacher, what's your problem? It's not my kid. It's got to be you 
Because surely it's not me. So it's got to be you. And you have this helicopter approach. You, you go wherever your kids do. You do whatever your kids do. Why? And, and where it comes from is a good place, but it gets out of hand. You're concerned about your kids. You're concerned about them. But then concern goes to worry. And worry goes to anxiety. And what begins to happen is, what about this? And what about that? And what happens if someone offers them this? Or what happens if this temptation comes? And I get it. I get it because every part of me wants to be a helicopter parent. But here's the problem. Have you ever been near a helicopter on the ground while that helicopter's flying over? The only thing you do is create great turmoil on the ground. Because your propellers are flying, the kids like the gravel's hitting them in the face, and nobody ever likes that. You know, it's not like, you know, let's bring a helicopter during our services and put it right at the roof line. Let's enjoy that. It's loud, it's obnoxious, it throws everything up in a world, and what we call that today in society is good parenting. Mm-mm. It's being an anxious parent. Now again, and I just, because I know I'll get emails, okay? Listen. I'm a parent of three boys moving into teenagehood. There's a lot to be concerned about. And I get it, but always ask the question, do I have faith in God? Does not God love my kids more than I do? Is God not watching over them? And again, what I don't mean is that we're not concerned. We don't put curfews. I don't want some teenage kid to say, really love the sermon last week, Pastor. My, key, my parents don't care about me anymore. They're letting me watch whatever I want. No more curfew, no more nothing, okay? That's lousy parenting, okay? That's abandonment. But how many of us have overreacted? And done that helicopter approach. Can I just be honest with you? As a boss, especially in my catering company, I'm a helicopter boss. Uh, I should tape one of my phone calls to one of my crews when I'm not on the event. Hey, how are things going? Leave us alone with all due respect. Okay, everything's fine. Well, what about this? It's fine. What about that? It's fine. You know what? Why don't you go on the job next time, boss? I'm a helicopter employer. And the reason why is concern moves to what happens if everybody's puking at the event? Well, it hasn't happened. If it has, I need to know right away, okay? But we worry and we're anxious about things and things are going to go just fine. And even if things don't go the way that we want them to, the helicopter or the ostrich or Murphy's Law approach isn't the way to get there. So what is the Christian to do? Habakkuk says none of these approaches work. Now, right before you think, before I move on from this, again, covering my bases, some might say, but wait a minute, what's the difference between concern and worry? Concern and worry. I've got a slide for you, so write these things down fast. Okay? So there's concern and there's worry. Now listen, if you're worried that you're not going to be able to write this down before the slide goes away, that's worry, not concern. Okay? We'll post this maybe on Facebook as well so that you can, you can get this. But let's look at them real quick. Concern is focused on others. Worry is how's this going to affect me? Concern motivates us to serve. I see a situation, I see that my kids are, are struggling, and, and I'm going to address it. I'm going to do something tangible to take care of it, where worry puts up barriers that keep us from serving, because if I serve, what if this happens? If I get involved in Junior's life, he may resent me, he may do this, he may do that, and so we back away, we don't engage. Concern promotes constructive action. Worry paralyzes you. You can't move. Concern is welcomed by others. Hey, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Nobody's ever going to be like, wow, get out of my face, man. Whereas worry, as my employees will tell you, is not welcomed by anyone. Concern is driven by love. You're concerned about your kids, you're concerned about your marriage, you're concerned about your job. Those are good things to be concerned about. But what worry is, is fear. What if? What if this happens? What if that happens? And there's this just fear and dread that's going on. 
concern. I've got a goal in mind. This is, this is going to get me somewhere. So I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, and I'm going to accomplish what I'm wanting to do. Whereas worry has no goal at all. It's the rocking chair, just back and forth, back and forth. You're not getting anywhere. Concern strengthens relationships. Worry tends to weaken relationships. Concern is tempered with our faith in God. Worry overwhelms faith with doubt. Instead of God can, God can't. Are you concerned this morning? And if you are, that's great. But I'm going to be honest with you. I usually call my worry concern. And that's a problem. So what do we do this morning? Notice that this text, its entire theme, is on us remembering the sovereignty of God. Remember God's sovereignty. So those things aren't going to work. So what is? Turning to God. And notice in our text, as we turn to God, we remember that Habakkuk is dealing with some difficult things. He knows that the hand of God's discipline is upon his nation. It's going to hit his neighbors and his family and his countrymen. And so he's filled with all kinds of worry and anxiety. But as he's conversing with God, as he's talking with his God, he recognizes that God is beating this drum that we've continued to hear over and over again. And you would say, hey, Tim, isn't this a bit of a broken record? Bad things are going to happen, but trust in God. Yes, but I will tell you that uh, we need a couple sledgehammer uh, hits to the wall of worry in our life. And I think Habakkuk did as well. And as he, as God broke through one of the walls of his fear and anxiety, there would be another one up. And so God continued to knock down these barriers. So what is it we need to know? Now notice, at the uh, beginning of chapter 3, Habakkuk says, I have heard the report of you. So he knows what God has done in the past. And he recognizes that maybe God will pick that back up in the future, but he's asking, what about now? Isn't that true for every Christ follower? We know what God did in the past, and we know that God promises to do something in the future, but what about now? What about the problems of 2017? To be honest with you, who cares what you did, God, in the first century? That's nice. I read about it. And we're going to read about that in two weeks when we open up the book of Acts. We're going to see how God addressed the problems of the early church. And we know, because the Bible tells us over and over again, that God's going to address the issues of the future church in those very last days of this age. But what about now? What about what is concerning me today? I want you to notice something that Habakkuk sees take place. He's wondering, God, are you going to come through as you did in the past? And notice what it says of God. Now, notice back in chapter 2, verse 14. It says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let me just help you. English 101. When it says the phrase will be, are we talking about the past? Help me out. No. Are we talking about the present? No. We're talking about the future. At some point, God's glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's a promise of something to come. But I want you to notice something this morning. In verse 3 of chapter 3, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. Let's go back to English 101. When it says covered, E-D, okay, that means it's happened, right? Not going to happen in the future. It's happened. It's happening. Okay? And then notice the earth was full of his praise. It's in the, in the current state of things. So Habakkuk says, I've heard what you did in the past, and God is saying, open your eyes to what I'm doing now. Some of us, in our worry, look back to the old things that God has done and said, yeah, that's great, but what about now? And God says, open your eyes and see my majesty and my glory right before you. You may not worry, you may not be so anxious if you see that I 
am on the move. That which Habakkuk hoped for in chapter 2 is now a reality. What changed? Did God all of a sudden say, I'm going to start doing things differently? I believe that it wasn't God who changed, but Habakkuk's perspective did. And some of us are mad at God because we're filled with anxiety and fear and dread. And we're saying, because God, you're not showing up. And God's saying, I'm here. You're just not looking at me. You're not putting your attention on me. You think of um, Peter as he walks out to meet Jesus on the water. But Peter loses his footing because he's taking his eyes off of the one who establishes him, who keeps him settled, and he's focused in on the circumstances around him. We talked about that last week. And some of us are so feared with the, filled with this worry that our attention and focus is on the worry, not on God. Habakkuk has his attention placed on God, and things start getting a little more secure and less anxious. So how does he do this? Notice God declares two things about his sovereignty. Number one, God is the creator and controller of all things. Gosh, if you struggle with worry, this is this. This is where you need to sit. God is the creator and the controller of all things. Let's start with the creator side of it. Notice what what God says. In speaking, it says that God's brightness was like a light. Rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his power. Later, it says in verse 6, He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Notice that he can move his anger against rivers and seas. He can do what he wants with nature. I want you to recognize that God, if you don't remember anything today, this line you should remember, God is the creator of all things. All that we see in the world, he's a creator of us because we're created beings. He's in, he's in, he is the creator of angels. He's the creator of the angels who would fall and become demons. He's the creator. And, and what he has done is he's mapped out our universe by the span of his hand. This last week, we got to be a part of an eclipse, which really was just a cloudy day in Sugar Grove. Okay, it was a little anticlimactic if you want to be honest with you. But then I saw some videos from Franklin, Tennessee, where in the time lapse, you went from the bright uh, noonday sun to utter darkness. I want you to know what the eclipse is. God taking his thumb and just moving the, the moon a little bit. Let's show these guys a show. Let's, let's, let's have some fun with them. And by the way, I'm going to have this set on a perpetual loop over and over again. And he does that, and we marvel. And he, he spans the universe with his hands, and he says, Listen, you, you're only seeing part of my pinky right now. Only part right now. That thing you call the Milky Way, that's the first digit of my pinky. That Hubble telescope's getting halfway to the second digit of my pinky. But you're missing all this that I've got created. God is a huge God. And this God that formed the world by the power of his word in the beginning is the same God who knows your intimate details of life that are just befuddling you, that have you concerned. And this God who created all that is seen and unseen says that you, man and woman, he is mindful of. He knows the amount of hairs or lack thereof on your head. He knows what concerns you. He tells you to cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The God of the universe is saying, come to me all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, who are burdened with worry and fear, and I will give you rest. The God of the universe who created it all says, come to me and I'll take care of your worry. But will you? He's the creator. Notice he is the controller of all things. Notice, in, in, we know he's the controller of the celestial things, but really how does that help us? Who really cares what Neptune's doing right now, right? I don't think many of you are worried, did Neptune stay in orbit last night? It's out of our sphere. 
but we're worried about our job or our kids or our family or, <clears throat> excuse me, a relationship. <clears throat> we're worried about the things that affect us most. And so we've got to go to the second thing that, that then he talks about. And notice, he starts talking about in the here and now. Verse 3, he comes from Teman and Paran. Those are real places. God's coming out from these real places. Notice Midian and Cushion are, are real lands. God is doing his work, not in far off Neptune world. He's doing it in the here and now, right where we're at. He's in Sugar Grove. He's in Aurora. He's in the suburbs where you go to your job. He's in Hinkley. He's in the far off places of the world. And he knows the times and locations of people. He has a GPS on us. Some of you just got worried about that. He's there. And he's in control of the situation. And he's seeing that the things come out as they should. So notice what he declares in verse 5. Habakkuk hearkens back to what God did. Before him went pestilence and the plagues followed at his heels. That's an allusion to the time in Egypt. God's people are in captivity. And God uh, rescues his people from captivity by drawing them out with pestilence and plagues. Notice the rivers, uh, are they the problem? Are the seas the problem? Notice he says, you rode on your horses and on the chariot of salvation. You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waves swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. And the hands are lifted high. Scholars believe this is an allusion to uh, Pharaoh chasing after the Israelites and being consumed by the waters that God controlled the foment about them after he allowed the Israelites to walk on dry land. Verse 11, the sun and moon stood still in their place as the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. That the idea there is this is where Joshua is battling the, the, the pagan lands in the promised land. And God, because the battle isn't done, Joshua prays, Lord, give me more time. And God holds the sun in his place. And we're told in the book of Joshua that the sun stood still. This is the God who controls all things. Notice it goes on and it says that you marched the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. Uh, this is a picture of the conquest of the promised land, Habakkuk is saying. He's saying, listen, you allowed all these battles to go through. You allowed your people to be victorious against a stronger, more mighty foe. Then he goes on and he gets more specific. He says, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. He talks about one particular battle and one particular person. And scholars believe that what Habakkuk is talking about is just a couple hundred years in the past is David going out, the anointed king of Israel, as the young shepherd boy who walks out and defeats Goliath. Notice he says that you went out for the salvation of your people. You crushed the head in the house of the wicked, laying him, not them, him, Goliath, a representative of the nation of Philistine, you laid him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced him with his own arrow, the sword of, of Goliath would be used to end his life. David would use that to finish him off. Illusions of God showing up and God saying, listen, when my people run into problems, I'm there for them. I take care of things. I control things. And, and so we see God is creator. God is controller. Now here's what happens when bad things happen. We start asking God, where are you? That's what Habakkuk asks. And I want you to notice that when we talk about God's sovereignty, it is not there to confuse us, but to comfort us. Write that down. It's not there to confuse you, but to comfort. And some of us, you know, we get into this whole idea of what do we do with evil, and that the Christian doesn't have to struggle with that. Because all we need to know is, listen, I don't know how God addresses evil in the, in the minute moments of it, and I'll just leave scholars to work through that, but here's what I know. God says, he, and what he says is true, and what he says he will do. And so I'm going to believe that, and I'm going to take comfort in that. I'm not going to be confused by the, the weird arguments that can come out of that. I'm going to just be comforted that my God is with me, and because he's with me, I'm more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. And I'm going to believe that, and I'm going to trust that. 
So God says, listen, I'm the creator and controller of all things. And you don't have to be confused about it. Because here's the thing. I've got it all under control. I will tell you, we have far less to worry about than we ever thought when we recognize God's in control. So this leads us to one final thing. And that is, I need to rejoice. Instead of worry, I need to rejoice. I need to believe. I need to trust that God's going to address the situation before me. And I need to rejoice amid all situations, even the worrisome ones. So how do we begin to do that? As we see God in all of his glory as creator and and controller of all things, then we recognize that we're pretty small. Notice verse 16. Notice verse 16, he says, I hear all of this and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. What he says is, I see how great God is. And so what worry, getting rid of worry begins, first of all, by seeing God in his glory. It starts with seeing. I see God in my in my midst, I see what he's doing, I see what's recorded in scripture, I see what he's doing in, in my present life, and I am going to see with my own eyes what he's going to do, and because of how great he is, I become really, really small. And listen, when you see God big, and you yourself small, you know what else becomes small? Your worries, your anxiety, you're not worried anymore. Because God's so big, God's so great, God's got things under control. Now the thing that is just so big in my life has just become very, very small because I'm pretty, pretty puny. I'm pretty, pretty small. And so are the things that plague me in life. And what I mean by that is not, listen, they're puny and other people shouldn't care about them. No, they're big to us, but in comparison to God, they don't scale. And yet, listen, this is the grace of God. God says even those puny little problems of human beings, he cares about. He's concerned about. What is man that you are mindful of him? Little, little man that you care about him. God says, I care about your problems. They may be puny to me, but I know they're big to you. And like a loving parent who talks to a toddler about the things that scare them, listen, it's not good when your toddler comes into your room and says, Daddy, Daddy, I'm scared. There's no monsters in your room. Go to bed. That's not good parenting. A good dad, uh, which I wasn't, but a good dad is one who will listen and, and is concerned about the things that concern them and, and help them to see that their concerns and their fears aren't really based in reality, but fiction. Or maybe they're not as big as we make them out to be. Are you seeing God as big? Then you'll see your problems as much and much smaller than what they need to be. Number two, seeing, waiting. Sometimes it's hard for us to wait on the Lord. But notice, he says, listen, I know my problems are big, but I'm going to wait quietly for the day of the trouble to come upon those who invade us. I'm going to wait for God's answer. And I want you to notice a couple things about this waiting. Number one, it's not I might wait, or maybe I could wait, but I will. It's a set decision. Lord, I'm going to wait on you. I'm not going to move from this place until you say so. I will wait. Number two, it says patiently. I am not going to wait going like this. Oh, I wonder what God's going to do. I wonder what God's going to do. Uh, I can't focus in on going to church because I'm worried about this. And we're just pacing about. And some of you are doing this and you're saying, well, I'm waiting. God, when are you going to do it? And you're going back and forth and you're, you're working lines into your carpeting because of it. And you're pacing back and forth. You're not patiently waiting. Patiently waiting says, Lord, I rest in you. I will sit and wait for your response. And I'm not going to, listen, I'm not going to do what our children do. Is it time? Is it time? Is it time? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? We traveled recently and God bless them. Luke, there's 15 minutes into a 14 hour drive. Are we almost there? And the guy's got a TV in front of him. Air conditioning. 15 minutes, kind of long, Dad. Can you move through Ohio a little bit faster? 
And that's what we're like with God. We know it's going to take some time, but are we there yet, God? And, and can I just remind you that God, he seemingly has no problem with us waiting. Uh, Abraham waited 80 years. Moses waited 40. David waited years to see what God was going to do. People wait. And we need to learn that if we're going to beat this thing called worry. God's timetable is not ours. God doesn't move at our beck and call. He wants us to rest in him and wait on him and see him greater than that and notice to trust. Verse 17 through 19 is trust. Trust, trust, trust. But what about this, God? What about that, God? And so what he does is he talks about all the what-ifs. And I'm going to change the what-ifs as I close this out. He talks about the blossoms and the fruit and the produce and the fields and the flock and all that. And you're like, listen, I don't have fig trees. I don't have any fruit. We live in Chicago. Not much fruit getting uh, taken care of here. Uh, I'm not sure what my olive crop is doing. And I'm not sure whether my herd's in the stall. If you're talking about kids, no, very rarely are they in the stall. So how does this work? Well, let me put it in modern 21st century vernacular. What if you lose your job? What if the safety net fails? What if you run out of food? What if you can't pay your bills? What if your children end up in jail? What if your loved ones never come to Christ? What if the doctor says it's terminal? What if your spouse has a heart attack and leaves you alone through death? What if they find someone else? What if our country falls to a foreign power? What if we lose our job? What if we end up in jail for our faith? What then? In the myriad of what-ifs that come, what then will I do? The righteous will live by faith and it will trust. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Listen, our salvation is all that we need. It's all that we need. God, you are my strength. You make my feet like the deer. You make me tread on high places. What are you worried about this morning? Give it to God. See him in his glory. Wait on his time. And trust his ways. And I believe with all my heart, your worry will disappear. Give it to him. It's not bigger than him. I know it's going to be hard. That's why we call it faith. It's seeing something that isn't right in front of us, but believing God has a plan and purpose for it. Take your worries and your fears, give them to God, and watch what he will do.